Dr. Mary Guinan was one of the first scientists to conduct an initial investigation into the emerging HIV-AIDS epidemic for the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Additionally, she was one of the first female physicians to work on smallpox eradication and has been a leading researcher and educator on sexually transmitted diseases. You are listening to ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Caudill, host of Everyday Family Medicine. Joining me today is Dr. Mary Guinan, who was the founding dean of the School of Community Health Sciences at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and is now a professor emerita. Dr. Guinan, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm, I'm really delighted to have you as a guest today. We're, we're talking about your book entitled Adventures of a Female Medical Detective in Pursuit of Smallpox and AIDS. Your book was really quite fascinating and really highlights your, your career and your work as a, as a female medical detective. I guess my first question was really about the female part. You know, And in the course of your career, you mentioned often being either the only woman doctor or one of just a few in whatever environment you were in. You were also the first woman to serve as chief scientific advisor to the director of the CDC, you know, what was it like being a woman in the medical field at the different phases of your career? Well, it was at the beginning of the career, getting into medical school, and it, it was very difficult because at that time there were very few medical schools who accepted women on an equal basis. So when I started out, I didn't have any money, and you needed to have money to go to medical school at that time. I graduated from college in 1961, and there were no scholarships or loans readily available to go to medical school. So I knew that I couldn't do that. And so I I had majored in chemistry, and I eventually decided that I'd go to graduate school. And I decided to go to graduate school, but I wasn't accepted in many of them. And I would get letters saying, we do not accept women or we do not provide a scholarship or funding for your studies. So it happened in 1963 after President Kennedy was killed. He had wanted to have this a man on the moon in 10 years. And at that time, a whole lot of funding went into careers in science for people who would be working in the space program. They needed scientists in the space program. And what had happened was that the Russians had gotten to space first. And the fear was, and this is really the truth, that the Russians were going to get to the moon first and control the world. Now, we know now that that wouldn't have happened. But at that time, that was the fear. The Cold War was in its height. So this funding became available. And I applied to the University of Texas Medical Branch, which is in Galveston, Texas, which is right next to where NASA is, and I got a fellowship in physiology, and I studied aviation and space medicine and other things, and it was a very, very exciting career, at least a study program. At the end of my training, I went to NASA and took courses in aviation and space medicine, and during my studies, in, in classes, astronauts would come and talk, and it was just fascinating. And I had this wonderful idea about science and what, what, what one can do. But it became clear that I was unlikely to be selected to be an astronaut. And what happened, I went to, to NASA for the course, and there were 11 or 12 of us in the course, and I was the only woman. 
And at the end of the course, we were given a form to fill out about whether we were physically fit to be in the space program. And it included lots of information about your health. And it also included whether you had 20-20 vision and what your height and weight was. And it turned out that I was the only one in the class who was physically eligible to apply for the space program because I had 20-20 vision. At that time, you had to fit into a capsule, so you couldn't be too tall or too wide. And so I fit into the capsule, and I was eligible, but I was not invited to participate. And I found out through the newspaper that Houston Central, where all of the information was being collected and the astronauts would be monitored, they didn't allow women into that room, even to bring coffee, because they would distract the men. So I was pretty much aware that I was not going to be in the astronaut program. And my mentor at UTMB helped me get a fellowship at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, where I continued my studies. And it was still problematic for me to get a job. People would say, oh, you're going to get married and have children, and we don't want to invest in you. But uh, at NIH, it, it was, we'd love to hire you, but we can only hire MDs, not PhDs. And after I heard that many times, I thought, well, maybe I can go to medical school now because there were some possibilities of funding. And I applied to two schools. I was living in Maryland, the University of Maryland and Johns Hopkins, and I was rejected from the University of Maryland but accepted at Hopkins. I found out subsequently that one of the reasons I was probably accepted was that a donor to the Johns Hopkins University at its opening had insisted that women be admitted on an equal basis to men. Now, for many, many years, equal meant 10%, but I believe that I was lucky enough to get into that 10% quota, and that's how I got into medical school. That's amazing. Certainly lots of, of, of ups and downs with, you know, your experiences, and, you know, it, things have changed, but, but you know, being a woman is still sometimes it feels different, I think, and I think your experiences are very inspiring as we listen to your story. You have a lot of inspiring stories, though, in your book. I loved reading it. You've, you've worked with medical conditions such as smallpox and HIV and so many others, and I'm curious, you know, when you look back about your medical adventures, which of them was kind of either your favorite or your most prideful or the most exciting, would you say? Well, I think the one that changed my life and gave me direction was the smallpox eradication program. I had never been interested in public health. I had studied blood coagulation during my doctorate dissertation, and I thought I would be a hematologist. But as I was finishing school and doing my residency program in internal medicine, I wasn't sure I really wanted to do that. And I then was reading in the Johns Hopkins Medical Journal that was sent to us that there was this smallpox eradication program was had been designed. And this is during the Cold War, and 165 countries in the world had agreed to participate and to eliminate smallpox from the world. And it would be the first time in the history of the world that a disease had been eliminated by, by the design of persons. 
So I decided I wanted to be part of that. It just was sounded so wonderful and exciting. And and to try to how to, to get into that program was not clear to me. And I eventually found out that every country had an agency which was linked to the World Health Organization, which led the worldwide smallpox eradication program. And the Centers for Disease Control, which was called then, now it's the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, it was the agency in the United States that linked up with the World Health Organization. And that's where the volunteers for the smallpox eradication were being selected from for the most part. So I applied for what was called the Epidemic Intelligence Service. It's a two-year training program at the CDC that trains you in epidemiology, which means essentially identification and control of epidemics. And you, you have a training program on how to do that. And during the training program, people would ask what we, we were called EIS officers, Epidemic Intelligence Service officers. And we were asked to volunteer to go to India because India was the big battleground for smallpox at that time with a billion people. And there was a demand for volunteers. And I volunteered and got rejected twice. And I was told the first time that the World Health Organization wasn't taking women physicians. And the second time I was told that it wasn't WHO, it was India that wasn't accepting women physicians in the smallpox medication program. So I asked to see the director of the program and I said, well, you know that Indira Gandhi is the prime minister of India. And I wondered if she knew that American women physicians were being banned from India from the smallpox eradication program. And I asked, do you think I should write directly to Indira Gandhi or do you think I should contact the Indian embassy in Washington to find out how this can be fixed? And he said, I'll get back with you. And the next week I was told I was selected to go to India in the smallpox eradication program. So that's what I did. And it was one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had in my life. Going to, you know, the culture shock was amazing to go to very rural area in India up near Nepal where there was 99% illiteracy, where there was no electricity. People lived in mud huts. There was, most people there had never seen a foreigner so that I was something of interest to them. And I think it helped me that they wanted to know more about me and I think were more receptive than it would be perhaps if a local was trying to do that. And I had lots of adventures, as I explain in the book, including being given an elephant to help me. Yes, I remember that. Yes. I thought that was very interesting. <laughs> and at the end of it, when I, I was, I wanted to stay. Smallpox was still going on, but it was going down. Each month, somebody from Delhi, and that was Dr. Bill Fagi then, who was head of the smallpox eradication program in India, he would come and we would go to the capital and have a meeting for a day or two. And he would show us how many outbreaks there were and how they were decreasing. There were only two states then, Uttar Pradesh and Bihar, that had smallpox. And I was in Uttar Pradesh, and we were looking like we were coming down. It was each month we could see that we had dropped significantly in the number of outbreaks. We had 
identified and controlled. So after four four or five months, I had to return to CDC to my job, and I asked for an extension because I wanted to stay there until it was declared free of smallpox. But they said they really needed me back home to do my regular job. So I came home, and a month or two later, Uttar Pradesh was declared smallpox-free, and then eventually Bihar was declared smallpox-free. And within a year or so, India was declared smallpox-free. It was like, it was such an incredible experience that it actually worked. Despite all the difficulties, it worked. It was so amazing to hear your description of, you know, your day-to-day life with smallpox and being involved in, you know, really working to eradicate smallpox. It's really quite remarkable. It really is. And and, and millions of people participated in it. You know, you were just a little cog <laughs> in the great big wheel that of all of these countries, people, every country participated during the Cold War. The Soviet Union gave all the vaccine, donated it free to every country so that we had this really great vaccine and people were cooperative and uh, people who have participated around the world in the smallpox eradication program stay connected through a network and still write to each other, you know, have email connections on the newest events. And I think it just changed my life. I said, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to work in public health. So I went back to and trained in virology because I got interested in smallpox as a virus and I got interested in viruses. So I then followed up and studied other viruses. If you're just tuning in, you are listening to Everyday Family Medicine on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Cottle, and I'm speaking with Dr. Mary Guinan, author of the book, Adventures of a Female Medical Detective. So, Dr. Guinan, our final question for you today is, and there's so many questions to ask, but I, I, want, I want our listeners to go out and get your book because they'll be able to read these firsthand. But I wanted to ask you about the HIV AIDS work that you've done. And in particular, you were an expert witness for a landmark legal case. The results of this case now allow people infected with HIV to be protected against employment discrimination. Uh, and this was really an important historical case. I mentioned landmark because it really is. You know, how does it feel to have been a part of this piece of history? Well, it feels wonderful. It feels wonderful. And as I wrote in the book, John Doe, I never met him, and I don't know what his name is, and I don't know if he's still alive. I was selected from CDC to be an expert witness at the trial, and it was John Doe versus Westchester County Medical Center in Westchester, New York. And I I didn't really know what to do. I'd never been an expert witness and never wanted to be, but I was helped a great deal by a number of people, including the counsel, the general counsel at CDC. Somebody assigned me someone to help me and what to do when I'm being questioned because it was so important. It was a test case. It was going to be a test case, and it was really important. There was one other physician from the Public Health Service, David Henderson, who was from NIH. He was also going to testify. And then there was someone for the defense who was going to testify, a physician from... So only three of us were going to be testifying, so I knew how important it was. And I didn't know what they were going to ask me about, so that I spent a great deal of time reviewing all sorts of things about pharmacists, because he was a pharmacist, and whether they ever transmitted 
any kind of problem and all of the data on HIV and AIDS and how it spread and, and the possibility that it could be transmitted through pharmaceutical products. And so it was wonderful when the, when the decision came down. I mean, I just said thank you to John Doe because he was, for me, a hero who went and exposed himself essentially. And it was terrible time at that time for gay men, anybody who was identified as HIV positive or AIDS, they usually, like lepers, were avoided. People disowned their children. It was just a terrible thing. And he did that. He he brought that lawsuit. And I think that those of us who participated in it, and it was a whole lot of people besides me at CDC and NIH backing us up and, and at Health and Human Services, that uh, we had the good training to understand what we had to do and what we had to accomplish. So it's one of the highlights of my life. Well, I think it's. I think it certainly would be for anyone, and I think that the fact that you were a part of that, as well as so many other really amazing things, you know, as a... As a physician, I've been in practice for about nine years or so now. And, you know, smallpox, for example, is something that I read about that I haven't seen a case of because of the work that you've done as well as others and the changes in the landscape of so many other diseases. Uh, your work is really admirable. And and for that, um, you know, Dr. Guinan, we're coming to a close for our interview. I just want to thank you very much for joining us today on ReachMD to talk about your experiences as a female medical detective. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Caudill, and to download this podcast and others in the series, please visit us at reachmd.com slash everydayfamilymedicine. We encourage you to leave comments and to share the program with your colleagues. Thank you for listening.